talking to Susie Esmond, one of my favorite human beings on earth. <laughs> Very Thanks, funny, David. adorable. You know, um, I was thinking about that you, you don't remember this, but I do because it was so important to me. The first time I did The Tonight Show, I was doing some Fakakta TV show called Baby Boom on NBC. So they booked me on The Tonight Show. And the first time they booked me, I got bumped by Jonathan Winters because he was just going on and on and on as he would do (laughs) and was so brilliant. And the next time they booked me, you were actually on the show. Oh. And it was the first time I met you. And I was a wreck. I was such a nervous... I mean, imagine, I'm doing The Tonight Show for the first time. And I wasn't doing stand-up. I was just doing panel. Uh And if if you weren't there, I think I would have had a heart attack. You were so kind. Oh, good. Good. (laughs) But that's the first time we met. Were you on before me or after me? After. After. Mm -hmm. So you were sitting to my right. Yes. I remember like you patted me on the leg or something. It's going to be okay. Because you saw I was a wreck. (laughs) I had no moisture in my mouth. (laughs) You know how the moisture just leaves your mouth? (laughs) (laughs) What did you talk about? Do you remember? Uh, It was bad. The person who I had been working with preparing me was my manager at the time, and he gave me the worst advice for the material I should use. And I just listened to him because I was an idiot. And it was it just did not go over well. <laughs> I think what happened was he didn't know I was a comic. Oh. He was expecting the new little actress from the new sitcom on NBC. And I came on and I was very bawdy, as I am wont to be. And really? he wasn't expecting that. <laughs> and so I think I shocked him a little bit. But you couldn't say much then anyway, but just... For a woman to even venture into that Correct. area yeah. for Johnny would have been a little shocking, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. And then what I remember was that when he left, I was down in the dressing room or whatever, and he left, and he was wearing like a sweater vest, you know, and he looked really nerdy. Like he looked completely <laughs> yes. different yes. leaving, like this kind of nerdy yeah. guy. Was that what he was like? He wasn't a nerdy guy, but guys aren't women. So they're not (laughs) all this time. (laughs) It's been a philosophical point I've been trying to make for years. You're the first person that got (laughs) so as a woman, you have to look a certain way, right? You have to stay with a certain boundary. If you're a guy, it it doesn't matter. You could, as a comedian, finding your own voice is the hardest thing to do. How do you separate yourself? Well, that always pissed me off because when I was coming up as a comic, the the guys would just look like shit. You know, these male comics they would yes. get on in that dirty t shirt. Yes. You're a you're a natty dresser. You always look fantastic. Yeah, people thought I was gay actually. Well, yeah, because you dress well, but that's not fair. But the guys would dre- they would dress like crap. They would look disgusting. Yes. And the girls always, you know, I mean I would never get on stage without a lipstick. Yes. You know what I mean? Sure. And it just always seemed unfair to me that they didn't have to think about that. Look, we have that picture of Fred Astaire that you have the same yes. picture. Uh-huh. But he, the way he dressed was a way that I wanted to dress. I saw in the movies, he looked great. And then he would always wear a tie for a, tie a belt. as a belt. Yeah. yeah that, that, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a little gay. <laughs> yeah, that, that is. Yeah, now, that would have been too gay. <laughs> yeah, but I, I cared about my material a lot. Mm-hmm. But I cared about how I dressed a little bit more. <laughs> Hey, it's worked for you, David. Uh, okay, it's I, worked for you. There are limitations, I think, because of that. But there was always also the issue for me as a woman when I was younger of how I looked on stage. You know, because you wanted to look good, yeah. but you didn't want to look too hot. 
Yes. You know, like you wanted men to laugh at you, not want to fuck you, basically. No, men will fuck a monkey. Exactly. So it doesn't matter. But but you didn't want that in their head. You wanted them to hear you and listen to you. So if you dressed in the slight, and and that's exactly my point, if you dressed in the slightest bit provocatively, that's where their minds would go. Yeah, yeah, you're a whore. Yeah, exactly. So you had to, you know, I never wore anything low cut. I never wore anything too short. Yeah. But men don't have to think about that. No. You could gain weight as a man, doesn't matter. You could lose weight. Were you always caring about your clothing? You know, my family, when I was growing up in Winnipeg, and I was like nine or ten years old, my mother dressed me in shorts and knee socks. Oh, no. And a little sweater. Like little Lord Fortleroy. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. And I obviously, I don't remember it, but my mother would say this for years, I I refused to go out with them because I didn't like what I was wearing at nine years old. Yeah. And I obviously said, because my mother used to say that to me all the time, I don't look a bit nice. And I, I said that so much that when I finished my Tonight Shows and I hosted and guested, the first comment from my mother was, I don't look a bit nice. You mm-hmm. look a bit nice. You look you great. You look a bit yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's just, so you had that aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. Well, clothes make the man. But, um, and I'm sure there was a lot of choices in Winnipeg. <laughs> was, well, a ski park uh, yeah, or a... Uh, <laughs> 20 below. <laughs> yeah. Summer is like a, for a minute or two. Mm-hmm. And then winter is the rest of it. But the people there were wonderful. I loved growing up in that time. So where, where did you grow up? Where, I grew up, well, I was born in the Bronx. And then I grew up in Mount Vernon, which is right next to the Bronx. Yeah. And did you go to school in Mount Vernon? Yeah, I went that? to public school. I went to Mount Vernon High School. I, you know who else grew up in Mount Vernon? Who? J.B. Smoove. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, also grew up in Mount Vernon. I would never think of putting J.P. Smoove in Mount Vernon. Well, Mount Vernon was very um, urban. Oh, it was? Oh, yes. Yeah, because he's a very New York yeah, guy. Yeah, it was very. It was like North Bronx in a lot of ways. It uh-huh. was just kind of an extension of the Bronx. Yeah. But yeah, that's. I went to Mount Vernon High School. And funny in school? You know, it's funny. I ran into somebody recently from high school, and they, they said, you were always so serious. <laughs> and I was like, you didn't know me. Because <laughs> I, I, I wasn't. I, I was funny with my girlfriends. Uh-huh. I would have sure. my girlfriends, yeah. you know, I'd be like sitting around with my girlfriends, and I would be hilarious, actually. Yeah. And they would all fight, like, who was going to sit next to me at the movies yes. or whatever, because I was always funny. Yeah. But, you know, there was that girl thing where I wasn't funny around the boys. Yes. The boys had to be funny, uh-huh. you know. So yeah. people thought I was serious. I, I don't I don't know that I was serious. I was a little bit intellectual, I think. So, Susie, when you were a kid, like, what was it like? Um, I grew up with an extremely depressed mother. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting <laughs> that, that Joy, you know, Joy Behar is my best friend. And, and yes. we talk about this. I think I was always trying to make my mother laugh. I'd come downstairs for breakfast and... You know, I'd be like excited about something, you know, because I, I luckily I wake up in the morning. and I'm usually pretty joyful, you mm-hmm. know, which is apparently mm-hmm. is unusual for a comedian, but mm-hmm. I am. And um, I, I was always like that. I would be excited about something. And I would say, well, how are you, mom? And she would just be, I'm as bored and lonely as ever. Oh, you know, and it was like always like, oh, God, <laughs> what can I do to cheer her up? Uh, so I think I was always trying to cheer her up because she yes. was such a deeply dark, depressive. Yeah. I haven't succeeded, by the way. She's 90. It hasn't worked. <laughs> um, 
My father was a huge reader and an intellectual, Mm -hmm. but he had a serious narcissistic disorder. I mean, he was unable to have a conversation without somehow turning it into some self-aggrandizing story about himself, you know? I have that disease, I think. No, you don't. You don't have it. Not like, you listen, he was incapable. Oh, okay. But, But what he did do, and what both of them did is, they turned me on to, gave me Mark Twain books when I was a kid. Oh, that's good. Turned me on to, you know, uh, the first movie my mother ever took me to was at a revival house to see Singing in the Rain and on the Town, a double header, you know, wow. and it was like, wow, I saw this stuff. So they were really good at, at, at that kind of stuff. I, I never got any uh, encouragement, as opposed to you who was beloved, I never <laughs> got any encouragement. I was always told to shut up, I'm being silly, stop giggling, stop laughing, stop showing off. Just your mother? Both of them, Both just of them. shut up, shut up, shut up. Wasn't allowed to be smarter than my father. You know, so it, it was like somehow, I don't know how we overcame that. No, but that that's the perfect DNA for a comedian or my a comedian. My grandmother was really funny. My yeah. grandmother, who was an immigrant, you know, left school in the third grade to yeah. work in her father's bakery, no education, was really funny. And I had a tremendous relationship with her. And the thing about her that was always so poignant to me is she ended up in her in her 90s with severe dementia mm-hmm. and didn't know who any of us were. And she mm-hmm. was in a nursing home and I'd visit her and she had no idea who I was. And But the nurses would tell me that she kept them laughing all day long. Wow, The one thing she held on to was her sense sense of humor humor. that never left her. Wow, that's so interesting. Even in her dementia. Wow. You know, so I always feel like she's my soulmate, my my grandmother. She was the one because my parents were just, oh, they were nightmares. No, but that's great. You saw the, you felt the humor in a human being in in a family that needed it. Yeah. And she was, and she had a horrible life. Yeah. You know, she. Had, I'm reminded of of your dog. My my grandpa's name was Izzy, and my <laughs> my grandparents were an arranged marriage. Yep. At 18 years old. Yeah, that you happened know, a lot. Yeah. And hated each other. You know, and the story was always that my grandfather had a twin who died in infancy. And my grandmother used to say to him, the wrong twin died, Izzy. You know, so like I grew up with all this kind of, my parents hated each other. Spiteful. Yeah, this spiteful, angry, they hated each other, which is why it took me till I was 53 years old to get married. I had these, so these horrible relationships. Um, So since I was a little kid, I wanted to be an actress. You know, it's a delightful life is not healthy for comedy. It's absolutely true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. I mean, it's it's you wonder where it comes from, and, and delightfulness is not funny. No, no, no. Sorrow is funny. Yeah, sorrow is funny. Pain is funny. And and what we do as comedians, I always feel, is like we just see the same thing through some twisted yeah, yeah. prism. Yeah. That it comes out the way other people don't necessarily yeah. see it, and I think that also we see a little bit more. Yeah. Well, you're seeing through things, and you have to. Yeah. You can't just go around it. You have to go through it. Mm. So when when I was a kid, what I did was, I remember my sister had, a for one Hanukkah, she got a little reel-to-reel tape recorder, and I kind of took it from her, and I was just playing Johnny Carson. I would interview everybody mm-hmm. and, you know, That's good. make little sketches, and I was always mm. writing sketches. And That's the difference between you and the people who aren't talented. Yeah. Jimmy, my husband, was always building tree houses. He became a builder. <laughs> I became a comedian. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. When you saw movies, did, who was it that you emulated, or who did you want to be like? Was there someone? Well, like that? Um, Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett. From you TV know, I Burnett. wanted to do sketch comedy like right. that. I wanted to do those, and they always looked like they were having so much fun. Yeah, didn't I, they? I yeah. mean, they just looked they were. like they were. Having, they yeah. were. Yeah. Uh, so that that resident uh, stand ups. 
that I would see on the Ed Sullivan show, Joan and, and Phyllis, they, they didn't really resonate with me at right. all. I didn't get that joke writing thing, and I didn't no. get that the self-deprecation. That didn't appeal yes. to me at all. You know, it, I had a problem with Lucy. Why? Because she was self-deprecating? Well, because, she, of course she was. Because self. Lucy... What is this bullshit she had to constantly ask Ricky if she could buy a hat? Go buy a fucking hat if you want a hat. It was constantly like every machination of, and this is when I was a little girl watching this. I'm like, why does she have to ask Ricky if she wants to buy a fucking hat? You know, it really bothered me. Yeah, yes, of course. You know, my little feminist self, it really bothered me. Yeah. But the, this is going to sound funny. The person that I saw that really resonated to me. And my brother and I used to religiously, whenever you were hosting, oh, really? would watch Carson. Yeah, we would stay <laughs> up. I would set my alarm to wake up. That's <laughs> so great. But I didn't think of you, because I thought of you as a, a host. I didn't think of you as a stand-up. Mm -hmm. uh, the other yeah. person who had a, a big influence for me on Carson was Rickles. Yes, Rickles. We would just watch him. Yeah. I mean, you know. Too funny. That was just masterful. Yeah, masterful. But as a stand-up, the person that influenced me the most, because I had never been to a comedy club, so mm -hmm. I didn't know what stand-up was. Mm -hmm. But when Pryor had that first movie, that was the first time I saw a real stand-up comedy thing. Right. And I was blown away by him. I, that's yes. what I wanted to be. Yeah. I, I thought he just was... Everything that I could even imagine, you know, funny, vulnerable, did characters, told yeah. stories, yeah. brilliant, you know. But again, that was the first time I saw comedy, really. Yeah, well, that's the best influence you could have. I think so. Like he was pretty prior. damn good. Oh, he was so good. I was at the bitter end in New York for a long time in the village. Across the street was a cafe a go go. Right. And I call him Richie because that's what I always call him. But but Richard was across the street and he would be playing to seventeen people or mm -hmm. eighteen people and I'd be playing to twelve or Yeah, we all or, did that. Yeah, yeah very yeah. small. But we were there for months. So he and I would meet at the Tin Angel afterwards and what well, how was your show and examining the one from the other and he said, I don't know, I'm not getting what I should be getting out of this and and then just one day he came, we met afterwards, and he was elated. He said, David, you, I can't, you can't believe what happened. I just, I, something happened. I said, what happened? He said, I, well, I don't know. It's just different. I'm just different. Yeah. And, uh, and when I saw him, I had to wait a week later because we were working the same hours. I never saw anything like it. No yeah. one had ever seen anything like it. That militant about being black wasn't yeah, allowed. That was, that was new. That was so new and and, and, and and wasn't he more, my understanding, wasn't he more like Cosby-esque in the beginning and then he found his voice? Yeah, he. in fact, he did material like a Cosby would do. Right. But then once he found it, and he found it in race, you know, in yeah, what sure. the race was, not being afraid to just push back against this and... And then he was so funny on top of it. He was just a he had he was very funny. charming funny. Yeah, you he know? just had a, he was accessible. Yeah, he, he felt yes. that that was the thing that struck me when I when I saw him. Then I had never been in a comedy club, and I, I come out here to L.A. and I was visiting my cousin Michael uh, Pressman, you know, director, mm -hmm. and he was directing Pryor in a movie, mm -hmm. and he brought me to the comedy store. And Pryor was he was working on material for his next concert film. A lot of it died. Oh, it didn't work. A lot of it wasn't working. He was just figuring out yeah, material. Yeah, yeah, because it, it, at first, it, you never know if it's working, and you have to and stay that with was it. And that was when I got, oh, this is stuff that you work on, and then it doesn't work. And 
So he influenced me in that way, too, because he was the first comedian I ever saw live in a comedy club, and he was dying. And I'm yeah. thinking, okay, so if, if he could die, maybe it's yes. something I could do. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know? Because you come back, you breathe still afterwards, yeah. and you come back and do another show. That's what comedians do. Yeah. So, so Carol Burnett... Yeah, I mean, I just loved what she did, and I saw what she did, and I thought, I want to do that. I want to do these... Never thought of doing stand-up. Right. I want to do these character Sketches things. and... I wanted to do, you know, like what Mel and Carl were doing, 2,000-year-old man that I listened to at six years old. Yeah. Just that kind of improvising sketch thing. And that that was my goal. Stand-up never was on well, my radar. The, what you're describing is a little community. So there there's a community of people. And that's right. what appealed to you more than stand-up, which is you're there all, all by, by yourself. yourself. And... Even when it's great, it's still you alone, which isn't as much fun as working with someone. It's not. However, there's something really great about being out there by yourself, you know? When, I mean, when you're finished and you hear the applause and, and they're and going it's, crazy. And for it, it is all you. Yes. And there is, it's, it, it is just me out there on that stage, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. But it's, there's a gratification in it that I don't know that there isn't anything else. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very it's very rewarding. Yeah. Because you you don't just fall on it by luck. You have to work at failing for a long time before you get good at it. So when you get good at it, it's just a rewarding And now that I'm, you know, I'm probably at the top of my game, now I don't want to do it anymore. Really? Yeah. Why don't you want to do it? What just, what what is it that doesn't appeal to you? I the mean, the road for sure. Well, the road, appeal. forget the road, but yeah. and by the way, anybody listening to this, I could still be bought. I'm still willing to do it for money. And, you know, I'm a whore. Yeah. And and you will not get it. I'll never, I'll never just, you know, call it in. You'll get the best performance <laughs> yes. you possibly can. Yes, and it'll be funny and the you know, audience will go crazy. I feel like, my, my feeling about stand-up was always that I'm not trying to make them laugh. I'm communicating. I have something to tell you. Yeah. And I feel like, I don't have anything to tell you anymore. I've told it all to you already. Now, maybe I just need a rest. Yes. And then the other thing is, I don't care if they love me anymore. And what happens when you don't care if they love you anymore? They love you even more. Yes. It's amazing. It's like they yes. just love you. And it's like there was a piece of me that got a sense of myself. Otherwise, why would you even start begin to do this? Right. You know, we all go into yes. it for some reason. Yeah. Um, whatever that thing is that I needed from them, I no longer need. Hmm. That's a, that's good. That's a healthy place to be. Yeah, but I still got to make a living, David. <laughs> well, <laughs> that doesn't mean you're not going to work at it because <laughs> you want to make a living. The hard thing about stand-up, you're on the road, it's lonely, yeah, by yourself. Yeah. The, it's not like when you do a play, you all go out afterwards. Yeah, you all a, go for a drink. It's a community. It's a community that, yeah. you, that you don't have. When I came up, it was different. You had a different kind of community. It's interesting. Yeah. To, there's all different levels. It was like the people before you, that was the whole Catskills, yeah. Borscht Belt community. And when I was coming up in the 80s, you know, the, the comedy scene was insane. I met Larry David in 1985 or something, mm -hmm. a Catch a Rising Star. And you know, mm -hmm. Larry, I don't have to tell you this, he was a horrible stand-up in those days. Yes. Not that he yes. wasn't hilariously funny, he was, but he had no ability to yes. connect to an audience. Yeah. Um, Chris Rock and I came up together at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joy Behar yes. uh, and I came up together at the same time. And the interesting thing is Rock was always scared of Joy and I because he would do this really sexist shit. 
Mm-hmm. And he would always be like, oh, I hope Behar and Esmond aren't in the room. Because <laughs> he gonna... knew we were just going to give him shit afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? uh, John Stewart came up with, with us. Um, came up where, like in Catch a Rising, Catch a Rising Star. Star right. And, you know, that we all, we yeah. all were working together. But I remember John Stewart, when I knew he was funny, he had this bit. I don't want to bastardize this bit, but it was something about how when his father took home movies... He saw John and he said, too Jewish. <laughs> that's very funny. So I was like, I knew this kid is funny. That, that was one of the first bits I ever saw him do. That, I was like, I knew funny. this kid was really original and funny. You know? That's so funny. There was not that many of us and we all knew each other. And you hung, you went out to the diner at four o'clock in the morning after yeah. your sets. And there was tremendous sense of community in those days. When you started uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, did you think it was going to be a hit right away? Well, it wasn't. I, you know, yes, it was it terrible, the, fir- the first show especially. The first season, I shot three episodes, two of which were kind of innocuous, and one was a real Susie Green episode. Mm-hmm. But when I read the outline for the Beloved Aunt episode, mm-hmm. I knew that this was a thing of genius. Yeah. I-, I knew that it was just like, wow, this is just... Another so, place. This is yeah. so brilliant. you know. Yeah. And you know, because you see the outlines, I yeah. see the outlines. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you feel this way, but at, I have a comedian's brain. I understand yeah. comedy. Yeah. And I read those outlines, and I don't know how the fuck he got there half the time. Yes, yes. You know, I read them, yes. and I'm just like, how did he get there? Yeah. It's a different, he's got a different brain. Yes. Oh, no question. He is completely brutally honest. Yeah. About his frailties. Right. But then it's the structure. Yeah, it's well, the story. It's, it's the story yeah. structure yeah, yeah, no, no, he's that he writer. gets to in a way that yeah. I, I can't figure out. So doing it and seeing it the first season, I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen on television. Yeah. What was your favorite curb thing that you did that for just for humor alone? What was one of the... I always loved when you swore at someone and just... Well, I mean, I, I can't really beat, you know, I'll have to step back from the mic. Get me the fucking head! I can't really beat that. In season eight, the mm-hmm. last season we did, in my wildest dreams in my life... I never thought that I was going to be in a car with Larry David, driving through Harlem, having an orgasm. Yes. yes. <laughs> the odd thing about your career is you start this career, you know, I was talking about I was into Carol Burnett and I thought I was going to be a comedic actress. And little did I know that here I am, I've been doing stand-up for almost 33 years, that I would be beloved for telling people to go fuck themselves. <laughs> and that yes. they would pay me money. Yes. You know, yeah. and sometimes yeah. I do these charity things and they just want me to tell them to go fuck themselves and then yeah. they give me money. You know, it'd be great if you were in a fight with your family and tell them to go fuck themselves Doesn't and give work. you some money. <laughs> no. <laughs> Doesn't no. work. Yeah, the go fuck yourself that you gave to the community was unbelievable because so much fun. Yeah, it was so, so much, much fun. fun. And your character was written so well too that you had so much sort of flexibility. I love Well, that. and you know, Larry and I have had never ever discussed the character. Yeah. Ever. Yep. The first scene that I had a Susie Green scene, he said to me, I want you to rip Jeff a new asshole. I thought, yep. well, I've been in relationships. I could do yep. that. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yes. So I'm doing it. And, you know, so then he keeps on saying, go further, go further. So I was like, all right, go further. And finally, Larry pulls me aside. He says, make fun of Jeff's fat. You know, call him a fat bastard, a fat fuck. And I was like, Larry, I don't want to do that. You know, Jeff has a problem. He's overweight. I don't yeah. I don't like to make fun of people's physical. So um, he was like, go ahead, just do it. Just do it. He knows you're just acting. So I, you know, called him a fat fuck. And the rest is history. Yes, yes, but, but we never discussed the character. We had like somehow 
I kind of got what he wanted and gave it to him and he got what I was giving him and just started writing more in the outlines for that. But there was never a discussion about it, which I think is such a, that's what it it kind of feels like sex in a way (laughs) when you're improvising with somebody. Yes, you have to be connected to them. Yeah, because you're giving and taking yeah. at the same time. And yeah. if you're having really great sex, you're giving and taking at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And then yeah. this other thing happens. And not that I would ever have sex with either Jeff or Larry. Let me just state that <laughs> unequivocally. But the working, the, the creating together in this improvising kind of way, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. It's very hot. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's the most fun. I, yeah. That's where I come from, Second City and all of them. That's all we did was improvise and your community, it's, it's incredible. And, and it you, makes you so quick. Yeah. When I direct and Larry's around, Larry will look at me a certain way and then look at another actor while, he, while he's got my eyeballs looking at him. And that means I hate that person. I know. I, and I know the look. <laughs> like sometimes, here's what he'll do, David. And he loves you as a director. You know yeah, that when yeah. you're on set, it's just heaven. Yes. But here's what he'll do sometimes. I'll do a take. And he'll come over to me and he'll have this look on his face like he just smelled shit. You know, I know the exact look. And, yeah. I'll, and he'll start to say something and I'll say, I know. Yes. I know. Don't even go there. I know. Yeah. I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah. Well, and also the people having to improvise, actors who are great actors, if they've never improvised before, it's terrifying. I remember when Ted Danson and Mary did their first show, I was directing them. And Ted was like, what do you mean? There's no script. I don't know what I'm doing. It was his first one. Said, I, and yet I, he became such a good improviser. He's so good. Yeah. And so is Mary. Yeah. But when you when you look at people uh, like JB, who's a brilliant improviser. <laughs> so great. I mean, just, but he's a comic. Yeah. You he's know? a comic and he's a comic all the time. Do you know what, he, what they told me? When we had to do looping, when we got syndicated, I had to loop for like 10 days because mm-hmm. you know, I had so many fucks and they all had mm-hmm. to be freaks and mm-hmm. it was really driving me crazy. But Megan Murphy, who was the post editor, told me that that JB would come in for looping and improvise in the looping. You can't improvise no, in no, looping. You, you have to fit it into what your mouth <laughs> exactly. is already saying. But he would improvise in the yeah. looping. Well, he was new to it. You know, it takes a while to catch on to it. But it, it's the most fun, isn't it? Most the most fun. fun. Yeah. Most fun. Yeah, I, I, I miss it. I, we all want it back. Larry's toying with it from time to time. And uh, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> he's too. busy on Broadway. Yeah, he's busy doing on stand-up. Broadway. Yeah. Um, but coming off, like I just did, a, I, I have a recurring role on uh, Law and Order SVU. Those I have to get all the words exactly sure. right. And it's all this legal jargon. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like I go into my dressing room, I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? I'm a lawyer representing a pedophile. I want to be Susie Green in my crazy <laughs> fucking outfits. Yes. You will be again, I guarantee it. <laughs> I love you. Always have. Thank you. Thank for you, doing David. It. I've been around a long time